Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody here? To paint the scene quickly for you, we've discussed a lot of things leading up to this particular hunt, coos deer, in southern Arizona. And now we are actually in southern Arizona. And uh, the scene, for those of you watching on YouTube right now, is a, a motel room. And uh, ideally, this would have been recorded outside with a beautiful mountain background. Unfortunately, today... It rained in Arizona, in southern Arizona. It was very peculiar. Many, it, even some of us were caught without our rain gear. I will, I will point out. Maybe we can discuss that later. But uh, anyway, yeah, the the original idea, the Subaru, has been uh, modified with a solar panel set up on the hood that charges a deep cycle battery in the rear in the spare tr- uh, tire well. And that actually then has a power inverter off of it that we would have been able to use for the podcast. We've tested this out. It actually can work. And maybe we'll have to record another podcast someday just out of the back of the old sube. Why not? But, uh, yeah, why not? But alas, here we are with MC Ryan in this, uh, in this motel room. But, but following a couple of days of some really awesome hunting. And so we wanted to give you guys a little bit of an idea of what it's been like, maybe what some of the applications of the former podcasts that we recorded on this series have been like here actually putting boots to the ground, and uh, and other things that we learned along the way too that we figure some of you may be able to, I don't know, glean some experience, what's that phrase, so vicariously through us. Sure. Sure. No, I mean, this trip, Jim, was awesome. Uh, it was kind of the, the culmination of uh, all the previous podcasts. So Many things. Podcasts, yeah. podcasts, whatever you want to call it. The other episodes, we mm-hmm. talked about essentially buying an uh, inexpensive older vehicle, modifying it. Mm-hmm. We talked about how to hunt coos deer, how to hunt javelina. We talked about uh, long-range uh, archery, you know, kind of kind of getting your bow set up for uh, for long-range shooting, being able to execute a longer-range shot. And uh, it really, for the most part, came together and was just really interesting and awesome to see it, Yeah, for the most part, work out. Yeah, I would say so as well. And <laughs> we said this internally many times over and over. Even though, even though we enjoyed the heck out of our Boats and Bows adventure, we told ourselves... We should try and make it probably more than 24 hours on this one. Yeah. And uh, it's safe to say, even though we were a little bit nervous going into it with a completely relatively untested all-wheel drive Coosmobile, uh, that we were going to be driving cross-country and then going after some game in a place we'd never been, in a way we'd never done it. Uh, we were a little nervous about that. But but amazingly, here we are on day four. The soup. As you can tell, we are in Arizona. Well, you can't tell by the by the scenery. Actually, that was you could tell because we told you. You could tell because we told you. You're just gonna have to take our <laughs> word for that. But the Subaru did make it. It made it about uh, it was somewhere around 1,700 miles all the way down here to Arizona, mm-hmm. and ran like a champ. Ran like a champ, and then now it's been uh, it's just been bouncing along the hills and two track roads and ruddy washouts of uh, of just these backcountry areas. It's, it's been doing really, really well. 
I'm very glad to, I, I just got to say, I mean, this thing's like, I look at it as like a baby, you know? And the fact that I've been able to charge my phone off of the uh, solar battery, you know, kind of off-grid setup, being able to run lights, the suspension is held up just fine. We have plenty of ground clearance. The skid plates have gotten bashed around a little bit, but they've been protecting stuff. No issues with the motor, engine, no check engine lights, nothing like that. I mean, it's the, the paint on the cool. car is covered in uh, complimentary Arizona pinstripes from all of the various cacti and oh brush God. and everything we've encountered alongside yeah. these roads, which are actually. You know, like we've talked about a little bit before, the Subaru has a pretty narrow profile. Mm-hmm. And we were still scraping stuff on the sides all the time. Yeah. And so that was one thing that was super awesome about driving this vehicle around was you didn't have to think twice. You didn't no. care. It's not it's not a they rental were, they it's were, not a rental they were, car. They're they battle scars. Yeah. It's not a rental car that you're gonna have to return to the rental car company and then no. endure the, you know, glares and potential uh one of the guys at work actually has been barred from ever using a vehicle that he rents from a certain rental car company off-road. They, uh, they're they checking him on that. They make him actually <laughs> sign a waiver. Um, you know, and then it's not your own personal car, too, that, like, Mark, you mentioned, your F-150, I've, I think, could do the job out here. There are a few oh, things... Oh, it'd be would, fine. There are a few things I'd want to do to it still in order to make it probably ready to actually take on the actual... the, the just utter beating that this place lays down. But even still, it's like, okay... You do a couple of those things. It wouldn't be much, but then you're just going to get the thing thrashed, and that's also your, like, your daily driver. Oh, it's your daily driver. It's probably your nicer vehicle. You spend a lot of money on it. Not, not that you don't buy a truck to use it, because if you buy a truck, you should, or, you know, whatever, four-wheel drive yeah. vehicle that's, you know, for off-road and type, you should use it, but you don't really want to... We didn't demolish the Subaru. We just ran it hard. It's not demolished, yeah, but it is It is thrashed. You look at it, and luckily we got one in that goldish-greenish color, which hides the scratches and dust and dirt quite well. But it, it's, it's been beat on. And uh, But, you know, that's the nice thing about getting a car that started out inexpensive, and then you just modify the things that are, you know, you make it mechanically sound. Everything right. else, you know, it's like, okay, we just backed into an Ocotillo. Whatever. You know, it just, it scratched <laughs> up the bumper. I don't care. Okay. Yeah. It makes it cooler, you know? And, and that's, that's a nice point to reach with a vehicle. Like you said, those battle scars, when you see them as battle scars and not like, oh man, now I'm going to have to take that to the detailer, you know, whatever. Yeah. The battle scars, it's like a badge of honor, you know, like it every, is. every, every scratch on that car is a memory of this trip now, you know, not that you want to intentionally beat it up, but, and, and I'll say that, you know, when, when you first, when we started talking about this trip, and I was talking about you know, the, the the two previous times that I've hunted coos deer in Arizona, one time you know kind of closer to the to the border like we are now, and another time in a, in a northern unit, and they're like, oh yeah, and then you know all of a sudden the, the Subaru snowball started rolling, and you'd bought a Subaru, and I'm like, oh man, I hope it's as rugged as I remember it, or I hope you know because we're going to completely <laughs> different, like similar but different places, and uh, it definitely met slash exceeded like we encountered what we thought we might encounter they are oh, what yeah. they thought they were oh they <laughs> thought they were they are they are and uh we were discussing too how like for two people the sub forester and part of me hates to bring this up too because i know that there there are cars that i love i'm gonna throw i'm gonna throw one out there because it's already been thrown out to death so anybody who hears this right now you just okay so what happens is good cars come out in history, right? And the world 
realizes it's a good car, probably a little bit late, after it has depreciated in value from its original new car value. When the world finally realizes how good of a car it is, then they all start buying them up, and next thing you know, what started out as a, uh, you know, oh, this is a really great car that you can get inexpensively, now all of a sudden becomes quasi-collector's item status. Right. And next thing you know, they're fetching like four figures, or five, I'm sorry, five figures many times for something that it just, it like shouldn't be fetching that much. It's, it's, it's all off of this perceived value that everybody has around it or this scarcity. I was going to um, say, it's almost like a supply and demand it sort is. of thing. It is. So like the BMW 2002. This is a car from the like uh, late 60s, early 70s. It's a phenomenal little two-door coupe, peppy little four-cylinder engine, super fun to drive, a chassis that like handles really well, all that stuff. You used to be able to get them for a song. And then everybody right. started, you know, road and track, car and driver, whatever, Jalopnik, all these places started writing articles about like, oh, the BMW 2002 is the greatest, you know, driver's car you can get for not much money. Well, then all of a sudden it became this highly sought after piece. And now to find a decent one, you're paying at least 20 grand. It's like, this is, this is like a... Insanity. It's insanity. And, you know, the same thing's happening to a lot of good cars out there, especially ones that are older. People realize now that a lot of the newer cars, there's so many electronics and safety things and this, that, and the other thing. Your car goes into limp home mode practically if you drive, like, over a puddle on your way to work. And so people start finding these older cars, these diamonds in the rough. And I got to say, I mean, in a way, the Subaru Forester is one of those. We've talked it up so much. I. I worry, I don't want to talk it up so much that all of a sudden it becomes that same way, you know, or it's this collector's item almost, and they start climbing in value ridiculously. But we found ours for 1200 bucks, and we made it a dang good vehicle. And you, you mentioned, Mark, for two people, we loaded down that thing with podcast gear, camera gear, two bows, two packs, full tent camping equipment setup, a practice archery target, we loaded in a Yeti cooler. I think what is it like the eighty-five that we have in there? The it was a it was a small one, but we would have had enough. It's room like their for middle. It's their middle size that we were going to bring back. Yeah, it's their middle size for coos deer and javelina. Yeah, you know, not, you don't need the giant one. We, we loaded up barely utilized the roof rack. Oh, the roof rack has been used for the full size spare and the high lift jack, yeah. and that's it. And then we have a full tool case kit in there oh, with full, full, and. Uh, that was one of the bigger items in the... It's definitely probably the heaviest, just, yeah, per square foot that it takes up. And then a bunch of recovery gear. We've got, I mean, we have spare CV axle boots in there just in case. We also have, of course, the whole solar battery set up. I mean, all that stuff packed in there, and we drove it the entire way from Wisconsin down to Arizona. Everything in there. And then you and I were comfortably up front. It was pretty incredible. All of our people clothes, too, for when we uh, we got another yep. little section to this journey here that uh, you'll find out soon. But, I mean, yeah. No, it did sweet. great. And then as far as handling off-road, like, it truly did exceed any... I, I had some question marks. I told you. I, it, it seemed, honestly... I mean, I was stoked on it. Like, it was super off-roady looking. In fact, it almost looks like a mini 4Runner, like a mini mm-hmm. 90s 4Runner. Uh, also very expensive now. Right. Uh, one of my favorites. I don't own one. But, dude, handled like a champ. And I feel like it was, we were doing like off-road things, but I think it was doing it smoother than like even Super a truck smooth, would. man. It's that independent suspension. Like, because I drove uh, one of the other cars this afternoon, and mm-hmm. I was like, I and it was a truck. Bouncing around all over the place. It's like a, yeah. 
And I was like, oh, Subaru's a little bit smoother than this. Like, yeah. It, which also made it seem to me that even though I could visually see us that we're going over some pretty gnarly terrain, it didn't feel as much like we were going over gnarly terrain, mm-hmm. like when I went over some of the similar stuff in a truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And absolutely. I'm not dogging on trucks because I love trucks. Oh, I hear I you. own a truck, and I'll always probably own a truck. It's the truth. A couple, uh, couple of last bits on the soup, too, before we get on to the actual hunt, as well as uh, one modification I would suggest people make that we didn't do, just due to sheer lack of time, is a uh, some sort of sway bar link disconnect. So your sway bars essentially are set up such that they help your car maintain, oh, a lack of sway uh, <laughs> as, you're, as you're driving along. Anti-sway bars. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And uh, they have end links that then go down onto the control arms. And uh, they do sort of make, as you're off-road, if you were able to disconnect the sway bars by way of disconnecting those end links from the control arms, your control arms can move more freely. You put less stress on those end links. And uh, we just didn't have time to put like a quick disconnecting kind of sway bar end link on there. Um, we left them in place. I just never had time to get under there and actually disconnect them. I wish I had. I think we're developing maybe a slight clunk from one of those sway bar end links, it's, which isn't the end of the world. I, I and I do mean that. Even as somebody that uh, I understand, I'm I'm more of a you know oh you got like a transmission's bad. Sure, you can just replace that real easy, whatever. But those those genuinely are uh, a relatively easy part to replace. But uh, I just wish we would have gone and, and gotten something that was either a uh, quick disconnect or I would have just found the time to go under there and disconnect those ahead of time. Another last minute, very last minute addition that we made was a uh, method to bypass the clutch safety thing. So this is for manual transmission, right. off-roaders only. And uh, normally in, in a lot of modern manual transmissions, they have a safety switch that requires you. And, and when I say modern, even uh, I've driven an 80s car that had this. But it requires you to have the clutch engaged fully in order for you to actually turn over the starter motor. The problem there when you're off-road is that you don't want to burn up your clutch. If you burn up your clutch when you're off-road, you're stranded. You're done. Unless you can pull an engine and replace a clutch or drop a transmission, replace a clutch, whatever. You're done. If your starter motor goes bad when you're off-road, that's a much easier thing to fix and replace. So what you can do if you're driving a manual transmission is you can actually, if you ever get stuck in something and you don't want to just burn up your clutch by working that clutch a bunch and working the gas and trying to burn it all up as you're getting over an obstacle or starting up a hill or something like that, is you can actually leave the car in gear, turn it off, put it in gear, leave the parking brake undone, all that stuff. And if you can bypass that clutch safety switch and actually start the car with the clutch disengaged and in gear, the car will start moving. And if you give it a little bit of gas, kind of feather the gas, the car will just get going. You'll have to have the key in the run position, but it'll just get going. And then you can just go up that hill or go over that obstacle with the clutch already engaged. You don't have to have that slipping friction point to deal with. So we made that modification last minute and actually has come in handy a couple times. It has. It has. I would say this, Jim, and I know you are a giant fan of manual transmissions. I personally think an automatic would be better suited to the job. It is. Automatics are better for off-road. I'm just going to say it now. Okay. They are. Manual transmissions have their pros and cons, but I think the pros of an automatic off-road outweigh the the cons. I just I might just a little bit. I thought I thought you were going to fight me on that and you didn't. No, I I'm not going to. 
I, I think that if anything, though, this has proven that a manual transmission is perfectly viable off road. Oh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, capable. I wouldn't, you know, give it the old like uh, I wouldn't turn your nose up at it or turn the other way if you had a great opportunity to good manual transmission. No, off no, no. But anyway, so back to the hunt. Let's carry on now. So yeah, let's get to the hunt. We got to Arizona, mm-hmm. found a sweet, sweet camp spot, and uh, proceeded to implement our glassing techniques mm-hmm. and stalking techniques to chase after these quite elusive coos deer. It's incredible, man. Everything that everybody says about the ghost deer, the gray ghost, coos deer, everything they say is 100% true. And, I mean, they're just so dang hard to see. And the thing is, is like... You'll get set up. So let's let's place everybody in, in your mind. We'll place you in the in the position where you're hunting coos deer, right? So if you can imagine this with us, try not to imagine so hard that you crash your car if you're listening in the car. But imagine this with us. Let's say, and this is I'm already I'm already going to give a caveat. So let's say you're off of a road, and and I'm not even talking about road hunting here because this involves, dude, we're beat up our feet, our knees, everything. We've hiked a lot and this terrain is terrible and we'll get into that too. It's amazing, but it's terrible. But you'll start out Terribly awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be driving around your sweet off-roader and you'll find a spot where you're looking at a hill. Probably there's a canyon or something like that between you and the hill many times it seems or or a low spot at least. But you're glassing some, you know, thousand yards away sometimes it could be or it could be oh, beyond f- yeah it could be beyond it could be a little bit closer but you're just glassing up a gigantic hillside and you're picking it apart with your optics it seems as though most people start out with binoculars mm-hmm. a little bit lower <laughs> magnification a little bit bigger field of view than a spotting scope can provide a spotting scope is not a great scanning tool spotting scope is once you have located the general direction in which or or the exact pinpoint location in which a deer is then you want to get a closer look at it in our case we were hunting bucks only that's what our tags were for it's not even just necessarily like a oh turning our nose up at does or anything but we had to figure out you know oh i see some deer finally uh is it a buck and coos deer bucks they don't have big old gigantic you know Antlers growing off their heads like a mule deer buck might, you know, like your, uh, or even a regular whitetail that we see up north might have. They're relatively small, and they're also camouflaged by a bazillion cactuses and other yellowy, white-looking twigs sticking up out of the ground. And oh, they're constantly standing behind things, between oh, things, going behind, behind things. Just, I mean, they putting take their head one down step. to feed. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they're petite, small deer. Even even the big ones, you know, their racks aren't huge because they're just not yeah. big animals themselves. But uh, but yeah, so you need you need good optics to be able to tell. Hey, is this a buck? And you know, is it is it something we want to go after? Which for us was pretty mm-hmm. simple because that was determined by the factor. Uh, is this a buck? True. Exactly. And uh, so in our case, what Mark and I were using. We were using the new Razer UHDs, which I know is a bit uh, pinky up, but they're they're phenomenal binocular. And when you're out here, like Mark said, good optics are key. Now, I will point out, and this isn't one of those things. I'm not trying to be all like hipster and different. I'm just I'm just pointing this out as a pure fact. Our first day when we got here, one of the guys that's more local to us was using a set of Crossfire 12 by 50s. Yep, that is if I'm 
not mistaken, a $180 pair of binoculars? Maybe. Maybe. Somewhere in that vicinity? It's probably somewhere around there, yeah. Last time, I can't remember the last time I checked. He was out glassing us with our Razor UHDs in 12 by 50 as well. He was out glassing us, making us look silly. Just, oh, there's a deer. Oh, yep, there's a deer. Oh, I got two. Oh, no, there's three out there. And we're like, where? Where? Hold on, what? Wait, okay, where are you looking? Oh, you're looking over by that rock? Wait, which, wait, what? And he would literally walk us onto it, and we just couldn't see it. So there, there is something to be said about actually being able to train one's brain to get the deer eye, you know, to be yep. able to understand, okay, is that is that a leg? Is that a head? Is that a, a head moving? Is that a tail flipping? Is that just a leaf? Whatever. But once you kind of start to get into it and your brain starts to understand what it's looking for, that's that's huge. And and then of course when the when the glass thing comes into it, because then he started looking behind our stuff and then he yeah, he could certainly appreciate the difference in, in the upgrade and and I would say probably if you were to spend a, a sufficient time behind them, you might even be seeing, very likely be seeing more deer. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's so no, hard it to just, find them if they're sitting still, though. Like, you got, you, like, almost rely on movement. Oh, it definitely helps if they're moving. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely spot them, you know, other ways, standing, bedded, whatever. But if they're moving, that's going to be, obviously, the the easiest way to do it. And, and one thing you know we've talked about this before before when we've talked about coos deer hunting but having it having a tripod mounted binoculars yes with a very fluid head is essential i mean you are you are glassing for hours at a time literally hours you're eliminating back fatigue neck fatigue arm fatigue you're way more way more 10,000% more steady which comes into play so huge when you're going to be able to spot that movement because mm-hmm. you're not moving. So when your binoculars are rock steady and everything in that field of view is steady and something in that field of view moves, you will be able to spot that and you're going to pick up that deer, which would be a lot more, not impossible by any means, but a lot more difficult without them you know, on, mm-hmm. on a tripod. Yeah, I don't want to act like it's 100% possible, like you said, to see a deer through binos without them being on a tripod. In fact, I actually figured out a really weird way by laying on my back, resting the binoculars on my bino harness, propping my head up with my arms, and then looking through the binoculars. It was a super weird way. It was the only way I could figure out to not use a tripod with binoculars, but also be able to spot deer. And nap. And nap. Yeah, kind of nap at the same time. You could kind of like nap with like one eye at a time. Uh, anyway, there were times. there were times where like, we were in the car and we were driving around. It was like, oh, let's quick, like, let's quick check out this hillside. Or you're walking up a trail or whatever. And you're like, oh, let's just quick look over here. And honestly, I, I kind of just felt like if I was hand holding my binos, I was like, I'm not going to see anything unless right. I'm just extremely lucky. I'm not going to see anything. And it would only a couple times I saw it, this happen. But just to just to kind of get across the idea, I'd be sitting there. So I didn't want to get out my whole tripod because we'd been moving a lot, you know, or whatever. And I was like, well, we'll see how long we're going to sit here. I don't know if we're going to get up and move again. So I'd sit down, I'd glass my hands. I'm trying to brace my elbows against my knees and my feet really good on the ground to get my butt in a good position where it's not getting jabbed by a rock or a ocotillo or a, you know, whatever else has thorns in it, which is everything here. And, you know, finally I'm getting comfy, but I still kind of got a little bit of shake or whatever. I just can't eliminate it. And I'm looking around, not seeing anything, and then I realize, well, we're going to stay here for a bit. Okay, I'll get the old tripod out. Click, 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 get the tripod out, set it up on the tripod, and all of a sudden it's, oh, there's a deer. Oh, 
Oh, wait, no, he's with another one. Oh, that, okay. Yep. yep, that's a doe. Oh, that, that's a buck right behind her. It, it, it was all of a sudden, like you said, the tripod was it all I changed. Same yep. binos, same everything, same day, same spots. Even. Well, you know, and part of that too is, you know, out here, you know, I think it's generally, I would recommend you're using a somewhat higher powered binocular. So mm-hmm. I was actually running 12 by 50s, I'd say 90% of the time here. There yes. was definitely. A few scenarios, like even this evening, where I was wishing that I had the 18 by 56s because, and, um, you know, that's what some other folks had that we were uh, glassing with. And, and we had some of those with you. I just was, I was like, yeah, I'm going to run the 12s. And they were completely and utterly sufficient and probably an advantage in some of the closer terrain when we're talking about, you know, that, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 yard type stuff. And then, you know, these are just, these are just estimates, I guess, right, you know right. what I mean? But, you know, take that with a slight grain of salt. But then you start getting beyond that, and it's like, oh, I wish I had those 18s now. And uh, so it's like you're always trying to find that perfect combination. Oh, it's and true. I, and I think, honestly, out here, if I had just, like, my pick of the litter of what I was going to bring with me, I'd probably have 12s on my chest and 18s in the top of my pack. Yeah. What I think I would do is I would have 12s on my chest with like a unit adapter to go on a tripod. Obviously the tripod. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, and I'm talking and, I'm talking well, about using those 12s on a tripod. Right, 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 right. Yep, I totally get what you're saying. So I'd have those 12s ready to go on a tripod and I would have an 11 to 33 razor spotting scope. Yeah. Cuz that way you could keep it light. Cuz cuz we did hike around a lot out here and like we've mentioned or alluded to a couple of times, terrain is brutal. Everything wants to hurt you. Everything wants to Rip every CL in your knee, A to Z, A to Z CL, and then every <laughs> ligament in your ankles. I mean, it rolled our ankles countless times. Friggin' got cactus needles up in my heel. You know, it's just everything is scraping you, scratching you. There's these evil green bean things that'll poke. I mean, razor sharp. A lot of this stuff is razor sharp. They'll poke right through your pants. Doesn't matter what kind of pants you have. I don't care what pants you have. They're going through. And they some of them leave like a venom. They like stick around for a while. It's like who fashioned these things? They're oh, it's 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 unforgiving, deadly. unforgiving country. And the, then meanwhile, the rocks, the rocks are sharp. Uh, it's really it's really loose country. I mean, every yeah. I mean, it, it can look like uh, even some extremely benign looking terrain, like essentially flat. You can mm-hmm. step on a rock that's loose and it just wants to go out from underneath you. And then you get in some of the, you know, more rugged stuff and you definitely got to be careful. You got to be on your toes. You constantly have to be watching the ground, which doesn't help you look for deer. So no, I mean, that's yeah. kind of part of why you kind of want to, you know, you don't want to just like charge up through the country, but you know, you kind of get to your glassing spots and you glass. Mm-hmm. Um, on and, three. and try and go slow and steady and be diligent and glass along the way as, yeah. as well. But when you're when you're moving, if you're actually moving and trying to make some time, your eyes better be on the ground. Yeah. On three occasions, I recall, even though we were moving slowly and you know deliberately and everything, I recall looking up for a brief moment and seeing white tails bounding a couple hundred yards in front of us because you know we'd bumped one or whatever, and I remember thinking. Each time when that happened, I was like, I just happened to look up that one time. For the like 99% of the rest of the time, I'm looking down at the ground. I was like, I wonder how many deer have been right in front of us that have just oh, probably, scampered off. You know, and several. you just don't see it because you're looking down. But if you're not looking down, 
you're gonna eat it. I mean, it yes, it's it's brutal. If you looked at our tracker on Onyx, the tracker does not tell the whole story. It would say by the end of the day, you'd get back, you'd be completely drenched in sweat, exhausted, everything hurts, hips, knees, ankles, feet, toes, shoulders, back, neck, everything hurts. And the tracker says you went a total of 4.5 miles today at an average speed of 0.2 miles per hour. <laughs> and like, you just, you just, it's defeating because you're like 4.5 miles. Now, I'm not saying that's a cakewalk, but that also like, that shouldn't, I it's shouldn't feel that. like this. It shouldn't take the entire day to do that. And at the well, end of Well, you got to think though, you're glassing for hours. Well, you're glassing for hours, of course. But, but at the same time, like you shouldn't, I don't know. You you get back and you'd be like, "There's no way with the distance I covered." Yeah, you feel like you went a long way. That I should feel this just utterly beat, just torn up. So yeah, we we were uh, <laughs> we were commenting about that. The tracker app really uh, really just made us feel worse, <laughs> <laughs> if anything. But, yeah, it's like, whew, what do you think that was? About ten miles? Oh, oh no, it was two and a half. <laughs> uh, that's that's just how it goes out here, and then yeah, everything wants to rip your flesh open, and you know you got these little uh, you got these little choya things. They're these bright green. Well, there's many different kinds of choyas, but the ones that I we do not like are these bright green ones with these blonde needles everywhere. And some of them are big, and you look at them and you're like, yeah, I'm not going near that thing. But some of them are hidden behind a bush. Some of them are hidden behind tall grass, and you just go to take a step, and they jump at you. They literally. Like well, not literally, but they they feel like they jump at you. They're very loose, and they're barbed, sharp, sharp needles. They'll and again, I don't care what you're wearing. They'll go through it. They'll go through boots. Like they'll go through boots. Oh yeah. And then the only way you're pulling them out of there, and they're, you're going against the barbs when you're pulling them out. Yeah. If it makes it into your skin, your skin's going with. Doesn't matter. If it makes it into your pants, your pants are probably gonna have a big hole on them. I got one biggin' in the thigh today on a stock. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're nasty, and you want to carry, and maybe we'll get with this. So we ended up. I don't want to backtrack. You want to carry something with you to get those things out, either a multi tool mm-hmm. or a set of medical grade tweezers. Yeah, yeah, those are good things to because bring. Because anytime you try and grab one and pull it out with your hands, oh, it sticks into your hand. All it does is yeah, stick into your hand. Or there's other various, almost like hair like needles i guess that they're it's almost like a fuzz but they, they yeah they stick in your hand it's kind of like those annoying like small slivers that you can never find but they're just you can just feel it in your hand you know everything hurts <laughs> but uh but yeah should we get to the hunting the stocks we should but i want to talk about a couple of things i learned glassing real quick so because the, st- the stocks are fun the stocks are super fun but oh, i also I get to but i found stuff. i know i found the glassing to be really fun too and there were just a couple of things that I would suggest. So if you're thinking of doing a hunt like this, or, or or whether it's down here in southern Arizona for coos deer, or northern Arizona, whatever, or just anywhere in the country where you're going to be doing a lot of glassing, because that could happen in South Dakota. It could happen in wherever. If you're going to be doing a lot of glassing, here's the things that I had not considered before, because I'd never done this level of glassing before. One, I know that there are adjustable eye cups on binoculars that go out for te- for... They're intended to go out if you're not wearing glasses to get your eyes set at the proper eye relief. Or they go in, they twist in if, you're, if you are wearing glasses. So that way your glasses just bump your eyes back to the proper eye relief. 
when we got out here and we were using the tripod mounted binos, I just twisted my eye cups out like normal because I'm not wearing any glasses. And I was looking through and that was going okay. But the one thing I noticed was that I was after a long time sort of getting tired and I started kind of leaning more and more into my binos. Yep. And then my eyes kind of started getting further and further sort of into the eye relief. It wasn't an ideal eye relief anymore. And if I was looking dead center in the field of view, I could see the image. But sometimes you want to scan the outside of your field of view. Oh, yeah. And so as soon as my eyes would go a little bit off center, boom, the image would go black. And it was like I couldn't, it was like I had to move the entire binocular if I wanted to look. And then, of course, when you're moving the entire binocular, it's like everything changes because now you're looking at something different. And you're like, oh, crap, I got to get resettled again. And I looked over at Mark, who's done this longer than I have, and he had his eye cups twisted in, but he wasn't wearing glasses. And I was like, what's going on here? So I twisted mine in, and I realized that even though I was no longer sort of resting my face against binoculars, which I really don't think you're supposed to do, I was getting a way better apparent field of view. And I was, I was seeing things much better. I could actually look around at the edges of my field of view. It ended up working out way better. It was way nicer, way more... It was actually more comfortable. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think it is. And that's a pretty astute observation. And I guess, Jim, I, that's something that I didn't really even realize that I was doing. It's just kind of like how yeah. I was doing it. And I at guess, first I was like, know? oh, look at Mark over there. He works for an optics company. He doesn't even have his stupid eye cups twisted out. And then, I, and then I tried it, and I was like, oh, wait, this is way better. Not even wearing glasses. When you're hand-holding them, I do suggest actually twisting out the eye cups. For whatever reason, when I was hand-holding them and I tried doing the same thing with them twisted in, it, it didn't work quite as well as it does on a tripod. Yeah, like, you know, I find it, and I fluctuate, and everybody's going to be different. you got a different facial structure, but I, I fluctuate between just all the way in or one click out. Yeah. And I think oftentimes that one click out is actually when I am hand-holding them yeah. for some reason. Yeah. But... So there was that. I also, but that will help you, like you said, maximize your field of view. Yes. And then, I guess for me, like I just rest rest the eye cup, I guess, on my brow mm-hmm. and on the tripod. Uh, tripod, I'll even just manipulate. I mean, I, I use my tripod handle mm-hmm. facing frontwards. That's how I like to have it so I can manipulate it just with my you know fingers. But I, I can even manipulate the tripod with just like the my brow a little bit. So or some, the bridge some, of your nose. Or yeah, so sometimes I'll just kind of move my head a little bit to make those uh, subtle movements uh, because you don't really have to move the binocular very far no. to look at something completely different. Right. The other thing that I noticed too, this is another thing I learned about glassing, was comfort. Okay, if you're going to yeah. be glassing for hours in a day, and you're glassing for stuff like a gray ghost, right? We're talking about coos deer or whatever. They're hard to see. They require your utmost focus in order to see them. You have to be paying so close attention that, I mean, nothing else can possibly be bothering you because you need to know exactly when that little tail is going to flutter or the ear is going to twitch or they move one of their legs with the white on the inside of their legs or something like that. Anything that's a telltale sign of a coos deer, you need to be immediately keen to it and if you're sitting there thinking i got a rock in my butt or my feet aren't comfortable or my legs are falling asleep or my neck is sore or whatever my back is getting tight any of those little things are going to distract you and you're going to end up shifting and when you shift then you end up looking you know you you usually kind of come off the binos for a second then you get back into them there are so many times out here where you might get a deer and this and you look out of the binos to go tell somebody else where the deer is and then you look back in it's gone Yep. Just like that. And you're looking, nothing's well, changed. And sometimes 
you actually refind it, and it's in the center of your field of view. Yes. Right where you left it. Oh, exactly. That, yeah, I'm not even talking about it moved out. It's just that it's still right there. You just can't find it again. And Or maybe it's taken one step, and yeah. it's just slightly behind something, but it's like, yeah, you got to refine it all over again. Exactly. And if you're uncomfortable, so like, I'd suggest bringing a butt pad. Like take yeah. like like cut up a foam like yoga mat or whatever or sometimes they even make these purpose built butt pads for stuff out of here like this. The first couple of days we were sitting on rocks and stuff. Today, a couple of the guys that we met up with, Lampers and the guys at Angry Spike Productions, yep. Corey and Shannon, they they brought out some butt pads for us, and oh my gosh, and it actually improved. I felt like my glassing because I it wasn't shifting around so much. Yeah. So get well, and the other thing it allows you to do you you are more versatile from maybe some spots that you can glass from. Yes, yes. The last thing, okay, and then we can get stalking because it's super awesome. The last thing I'll say, get your tripod level. If your tripod isn't level, if it's canted off to one side or the other, as you're glassing for these guys, you want to glass, and I've heard this from many people, I've found it to work best for me, in like a grid system. And In my personal grid, I know some people do it differently. My personal grid was to start up high and go... To the right, come down a little bit, go to the left, come down a little bit, go back to the right, and just kind of keep inching my way down, like shoots and ladders mm-hmm. or whatever that game is. The problem that I was running into a couple times is I wasn't getting my tripod level. And so then what happened was, instead of my binoculars panning perfectly left to right or right to left, they were in a straight line. They were panning more in like a rainbow because, you know, whatever direction it was slightly unlevel was causing them to sort of, yeah, pan in this rainbow shape and it sort of screwed up how you know how I was trying to do my grid system sometimes I'd want to be like no I want to be looking there but I couldn't get the binos quite right or I'd have to then then I'd have to twist a leg or do whatever raise a leg or something like that to try and get it level again to look at the spot that I wanted to look at and uh, also the other thing is too is I is sometimes as you're moving around I would notice the image start getting worse and worse as I'd move to the side and I realized that it was because the binos, as they're going on this sort of off-kilter direction, because the tripod isn't level, they were becoming out of alignment. Oh, okay. Because my face, my eyes, aren't changing. Right. So my eyes are staying level, but the binos are kind of getting cockeyed. So in that regard, they are out of alignment with my eyes. So then it would look all goofy, and then I'd have to readjust again, and when I'd readjust again, then I'd lose everything that I remember that I'd just been looking at. And so anyway, all I needed to do from the very get-go was just get my tripod level. But I couldn't quite figure out. It took me the longest time, and it was kind of dumb that it took me so long, but I was like, oh, it's because my tripod's on level. Yep. Anyway, those are a few of the things that I felt were pretty important that I learned. So, yeah, you know, and I think one thing, we were actually in a pretty, you know, we're getting to the stalking here. We were in a pretty cool area for the first, well, every day, but for the first few days, you know, we're talking about the soup and driving, and we definitely drove back into this area. Mm-hmm. But the road system where we initially started was extremely limited. Right. Like, there was kind of one road in, and it kind of petered out, and then beyond that was essentially National Forest. Yes. So we could spot deer from the road, and I guess when I say spot from the road, you know, you're looking at deer that are 1,000 yards to a mile away. Oh, totally. going after them. But then also, once we got back in that country, we would generally, you know, once we were a mile or two back in, we kind of wanted to stay for the day. So we pretty much stayed the entire day. And that's when we uh, got into some additional deer and spotted a pretty nice buck in the afternoon. 
We saw several bucks on this trip, but this was one that we saw in the afternoon, and it was one of those deals where these coos deer, from from what we've learned, have a pretty small home range. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, you can refine them, you know, relocate them, you know, maybe the next day or whatever. Sure. You look in the same general area, neighborhood, if you will, of the mountain or something like that. And you sure. Probably find it again. But this is January. So we also have the rut in effect. This deer had been with a doe. He was, he was kind of paired up with a doe and uh, it was kind of on this, this teeter totter time frame. I think it was about, I don't know, 3 PM. It was about 3 p.m. when we finally made the decision to go after him. Yeah, I do want to say that. And shooting light was up until somewhere around 5:30. Yeah. And we knew we had yeah, it was about two and a half hours we spotted him. These are all these are all rough estimates, but rough. yeah, very rough estimates. But but anyway, all in all, we decide we've got enough time. We're gonna go over there. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a little bit of the whole thing, like I think too with us, a lot of what we were doing with this was okay. We haven't done this before. You're never going to know till you know. You're never going to know till you try. Yeah. You know, a more experienced, who knows, hunter who's hunted these things for quite some time might have said, oh, you know what? You know, like, I've got a lot of these hunts under my belt. This one is one that I really want to focus on. So I'm going to wait and come back tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe the next day, whatever. Well, and the thought to come back tomorrow would be let's instead come in probably in the dark. We'll get to this big rock that we've identified. We know the buck was over here mm-hmm. and we'll be quite a bit closer to the deer and have a lot more time to, you know, work that deer throughout the day. Right. And kind of, you know, hopefully come into like a maybe a little bit more perfect scenario. Because I don't know, I think when we by the time we spotted the deer and actually got over to where the deer was, it took about an hour, I think. Oh, yeah. And we were hoofing it. Oh, we were huffing at when we got there. I was exhausted, sweating, exhausted, like heavy breathing. Again, we were going through cactus and every tree that wants to get you, you know, in rough country. Well, and and we, couldn't take a, we couldn't take a direct route. No, you can't just run straight at the thing. So we had to, you know, use the terrain to our advantage. We got down in some bottoms. We got in a couple washes. We cruised around to our right. There was another quite interesting rock structure. I don't really know what that thing was, but was we, had super to, cool. we had to circumvent that and we used that to our advantage to stay out of sight and then get up high on the same elevation as the deer. Oh, it was high. Work our way over, which was, he was very, he's very uh, high up on, on the mountain that we were. It was extremely steep. The footing was loose. It was hard to, once we started to get close, which actually this may have been part of the, uh, the demise of the stock at the last minute, is we knew we were getting close to where the deer was. We didn't. We didn't have eyes on the deer. We didn't know exactly where it was, but we we mm-hmm. uh, we had it bedded, pretty confident that it hadn't moved. And I needed to take a step up so I could have more solid footing, so I could actually shoot from a not like one footed awkward position. Right. Rolled a rock. I think we had a little bit of a wind shift, and that buck got up and bolted. And actually, you saw it, Jim. I didn't see him get up, and I didn't see him until he crossed the goalie and got to the other side. But he was probably about, I don't know, like 60, 70 yards away. I'm going to guess he was right about there, yeah, when he first jumped up. Because when I saw him, he was on the other side of the goalie, and he was only like 1, 130 or something like that when I ranged where they went across there. Yeah, yeah, and that was after a little bit of me going, he's right there. (laughs) 
Mark, turn around. No, look up. <laughs> oh, there was. But there even was when they're moving, sometimes they're hard to see. Oh, it's true. And even when you're close to them, which we'll get into that. I know I had quite an experience today, but yeah, that was that was uh, kind of our first big stock though on these things. And uh, man, what a what a fun what a fun experience it is though to to do that and just to get in that close, especially when you start from so far. I mean, we turned around, we're on top of, I mean, very close to being on top of this mountain now that we had been looking at and glassing for so long. It was so cool to turn around and look back at the spot that we were. We could still see our, our video crew is back there trying to get us on phone scopes and stuff like that, making this stock, and, and thinking like, wow, we came from all the way over there, and it only took until right here that that deer... <laughs> decided to scat, you know. And it was like a miniature, like it was a win. It was a win. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Of course, sometimes you almost think to yourself, like, man, dear, if you were gonna scat, why didn't you just do it when we were way down there? We didn't have to get all the way up here. But, but still, to make it fun. that far is just it's pretty cool. So you know, and and, and y- you learn something on every stock, and it's true. so uh, we definitely learned a lot on that one. Yeah, yeah, we did, and I would say that probably came down to you know just I don't think you can go too slow. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a point, obviously, where it's just like, okay, you went so slow that you didn't never got anywhere. But I also don't think, you know, like, we were huffing it. We got there. I think there was a bit of a sense of urgency that we felt probably like we needed to hurry maybe a little bit more than we need, we actually needed to or whatever. But we were going, and that's probably why, you know, like, when you when you roll a rock, if maybe if we'd taken a little bit more time. I know I rolled a number of rocks too. And so, you know, you take a little bit more time, you try and figure out which rocks are, are the solid ones, whatever. I think that was one of the big things there. And and that was that was a little bit of a tough spot, too, because we'd kind of run out of cover. We had. Yeah. But we were kind of in, like, you know, that danger zone. Like, mm-hmm. it was like, we were kind of in that critical area where we really felt like we were in that deer's bubble. Yeah. But we, we couldn't see the deer yet. But we that couldn't was the see problem. it, and we were out of cover. And I just wanted to make, like, I did have a sense of urgency to get into a position to be able to shoot because I just felt like he was really, really close by. Right. And if we were going to get an opportunity, it could happen oh, right. at any second. And there, uh, yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that feeling too. So it's it's kind of yeah. I mean, it was a t- it was a tough one, really. It you could go over every scenario and just you know try and think about oh, could have done that differently, could have done that differently. But in the end. The deer made its decision for whatever reason. The deer made its decision to get up and run. Who knows if he was even actually that rock? You know, yep. could have been something else. But yeah, that's just the way it goes. We didn't. We spotted some bucks yesterday morning. Two real big bucks, actually. Yeah. Never were able to get on those, but in the evening, glassed up some javelina. That was pretty clutch. I gotta say, yesterday was definitely a slow day. We had a moment in time where. Uh, Mark took a snooze out there, a, a good glassing on a rock in the nice sun snooze. I found myself researching cars as usual. Shocking. On uh, on my phone. Who knows? It, we might have another vehicle for another adventure. As Jim hasn't texted me yet. I'm but. I'm I'm not saying there's not anyway, but uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a slow day, and I was kind of thinking, you know what? Maybe this day's just gonna kind of cap out as I. I don't know where the deer went. Usually they're at least you can find a deer, even though it might be like two miles away. But then with, I would say about 45 minutes left of light. It was, to, yeah, there wasn't, we didn't have a ton of time. Yeah. I'm sitting uh, far over from Mark and Nate, uh, the video guy with uh, MC Ryan over here. 
And I get a text from Nate that says, Mark's, Mark found some javelina. And so kind of scooch my way over there. You pointed them out. We made our way down. We kind of stalked in on them. And then... So, yeah, I mean... You it, can explain how I screwed this up. Well, <laughs> I mean... I mean, it's just... You know, people, it's so cliche. Oh, it's hunting. Hunting's hunting, you know, and then whatever. But uh, so, yeah, no, that was super sweet. Uh, I mean, just such a bonus at the end of a long day. We'd been out in the field the whole time. Yeah. And, you know, just glass. I'm like, oh, I got a javelina. I'm like, okay, there's a couple of javelina there. And they're going in and out of stuff. Pinpoint where they are. Take a couple pictures of a, of a you know, fairly prominent uh, barrel cactus. So we knew... Once we dropped off that hill, we kind of could aim for that. And, yeah, I think I was like, I got some javelina. I go, <laughs> I was like, text Jim, get him over here right now. Yeah. And so we go making a pretty uh, pretty hasty stock. Like like Jim said, we were short on time, uh, relocated uh, the javelina. They'd moved their way down the hill quite a bit. And they seemed like they were moving, you know, uh, downhill at, at a pretty rapid pace. So we angled that way, got on them again, and just, you know, used the terrain and cactus uh, to try and kind of just keep stuff between them and us, but also keep eyes on them at the same time as we work down the hill. Um, I, I feel like people, uh, and I, uh, m- maybe I'm wrong, but people don't give Havelina a, a ton of credit as far as their uh, astuteness or, you know, the, their senses their, their senses and, and their uh, being uh, aware of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. And it, I wouldn't say they're the, the toughest thing to get close to, but uh, mm-hmm. they definitely, again, we kind of got into a spot where we ran out of cover. Uh, they busted us. They started to go and uh, jumped on the, the javelina call and just started ripping on that, ripping on that, ripping on that. And uh, son of a gun, they came in and uh, they, didn't, they didn't charge in necessarily. They were yeah. kind of slightly hesitant, but, you know, we could tell that they were working their way in. They kind of kept getting closer, they closer. They do their little, their, their little, yeah. Which actually, you know, talk about things that you learn along the way. I'm, I'm kind of a neophyte when it comes to javelina hunting. But I wish I would have transitioned off the call to that, that huffing sound because yeah. I think that might have been, I think that's almost like, uh, you know, the finish work, you know, when you're, when you're doing the that. The call gets the alarm going that they need to go over and then the, the, the woofing or whatever sort of gets the, it's the finesse. Yeah, yeah. But and I, so, think, I think I underestimated their senses greatly in that, I thought I could move more toward the javelina to get a better shot angle as they were coming in. And I think I spooked them a little bit too much and, and probably was part of the reason they came in so cautiously or, or didn't come in necessarily as close as they could have come in had I been more still. You know, that said, though, like we even had some come up and get around us, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, they definitely came in. I had some within range to get a shot, but they were far, they were far enough out that I wanted to get a range on them. They like, they were probably in that 40, 50 yard mark. And I definitely wanted to get a range before I, uh, let an arrow go. And they, yeah. you know, they, uh, you know, just, they don't, uh, stay put for very long when you're in that calling scenario. I mean, no. they, they kind of charge in or they move to a spot and they'll look and then, and off they go. And so about the time I'd get a range on them, they'd bolt, but Jim, you got a shot. I did. They kind of give you, they weirdly give you enough time to do one thing. Sure. They kind of let you, so one charge out, it actually it actually tried to flank us, basically. Mm-hmm. He charged around to our right, and I remember MC Ryan was sort of down there with me, and he's, he's recording, and I'm sure he has like a ton of expletives of me just being a moron because I realized that I'd kind of screwed this up. But anyway, he goes, both of us heard this, ooh, 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 
over to our right, whereas most of most of the action was happening yep. right in the middle, in front of us. And I look over, and he's like, he's like, there's one over there for sure. And I'm trying to find it. All of a sudden, he bolts out from behind an Ocotillo, and there he is. And sure enough, he stopped to look. And like I said, I think they give you about enough time to do one thing and one thing only, whether that is to range, like you said. So you range it, but then you don't have next time enough to do the next thing, which is to, to shoot an arrow. Or in my case, you pull back your bow and you realize you forgot to take your hat off. And with my bow, I can't wear my hat while I'm shooting or else it's going to get in the way of everything. So I pull it back and boom, there I run into my hat and I go, dang it. You know, so I'm fluttering around trying to get my hat off. And just as the soon as I got back on the bow again, then he took off. Yep. So anyway, that happens. Then all these guys, they're all starting to flee away now. And one last one probably didn't exactly know what was going on. It looked like a little bit of a smaller one. It was <laughs> somewhat in a daze, I'm sure, as all of his relatives are sprinting away frantically. But anyway, he pops out from, from behind another Ocotillo plant, and he was at about 25 yards. And I look over, and I said, you know, I still have this arrow knock. I feel good about this. Hats off, thank goodness. Pulled that one back, got him, and let it go. And right about as I let it go, I thought, that's a good one. Like, I've got a javelina in the bag. When out of nowhere, midway between me and the javelina, some bush had one... It reached out one and grabbed. Limb, it, it reached out and, and shot swatted <laughs> my arrow. And I am not kidding you. There's the arrow. It's on its way to the javelina. Oh, nice. Perfect. Boink, and it went off at like a 45-degree angle. I, it must have been the toughest bush branch ever to knock that off, but it did. So anyways, that Havelina got away scot-free with an arrow going right over its head. But that's just how it goes, man. It's it's a frenzy when those things come in because, I mean, it's happening oh, everywhere. And they're, dart, they're darting every which way. There's almost not a rhyme or reason to it. It's somewhat chaotic. It is. And, and you know, your heart's pounding. You don't almost know where to look. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you're, and I guess by not where to look, like I found myself, I'd be watching. I'm like, okay, you know, that one, that one, okay, th- those two are getting closer. And then you're like, oh, there's one right there, you know, and then. Then that one, it's almost like a just a right. like a hornet's nest of javelina. Yeah, yeah. So whew, it was a good, it was a fun day. It was, it was fun, fun though. It was a day. nice way to finish. We didn't it get was. one. It was but excitement. It was cool, and it was cool to I just have that work out. Like I said, you know, javelina hunting is. This was my first time. You know, I've been fortunate to hunt a lot of things. Never hunted javelina before. I've only seen them on a couple of occasions uh, in the wild, and it was it was cool to even though we kind of blew the stock portion of it. You know, have the presence of mind to have the call with you and then jump on the call, have it essentially work, and we just, you know, didn't get one. Yeah, that's just the way it goes sometimes. So then let's talk about today a little bit here. So today, uh, awesome day for off-roading for the Subaru, but we've talked enough about that already. But today we got to meet up with some buddies. We got to meet up with Ryan Lampers and uh, the guys from Angry Sprite Productions, like I said, and uh, Corey and Shannon, and they... Brought us to a new spot, and this spot yep. was one of the spots where instead of sort of parking and hiking way in like we were doing before, this was more of a uh, drive up to a glassing point, and then you would find deer on a hillside, and then make your stock from there. And uh, that was a that was a pretty cool way of doing things. Again, I wouldn't at all consider it like a road hunt where it's just sort of uh, you know just no. belly up over the hood of your car and shoot one. You still had to put in a ton of work on the stock side, but 
Well, and this was a cool one, too, because these guys have done this hunt before. They're all extremely accomplished. They're good hunters. They They're are. They're really good hunters. They are. And and so, I mean, I was really pumped to meet up with them. We were all in the area. The stars aligned. And it was like, okay, like, I consider myself, like, a good hunter, I guess. Like, yeah. these guys are really good hunters. So, And I was like, this is going to be a really cool opportunity to learn some things from these guys that, you know, they, they know their way around this game. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they definitely showed it today. And so that, that was really, really fun. They did. The way that they were, and I can't even explain it super well, but the way that they were able to describe the mountain in front of us too. Like before, what we would say is, you know, oh, he's on a, th- there's a ridge right there. You know, well, they would say, well, okay, the way that that ridge is, is actually you can kind of see where there's a valley behind it, and then it actually comes up. Just they sort of, they could look at the mountain almost as though they were looking at the mountain from a a top-down 3D sure. topo view, whereas we would only see it from our sort of almost 2D perspective from the side. And, uh, you know, they could describe as to where things were. Uh, you could tell they'd done it before, and they just yeah. had more and more experience. You and definitely can't. The Ocotillo or... The the big green bush, the big green bush doesn't is, work out no, here. No, it doesn't, and I don't know how, why. Every time I saw a deer, I'd say, "Okay, do you see the green bush? The whole mountain is covered in green bushes." <laughs> I, it's, it's just yeah, it's the first yeah, thing that comes yeah, out of your yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah, Jim, I do. It's the first thing that comes out of your mouth, and it's the first thing that can leave anybody else's ears first. I, I just like <laughs> just don't pay attention to when the person says, "Oh, it's behind the big green bush," but we did get on some from our first spot after a while of glassing and Mark, you and Corey, we're going to go off to, uh, to stalk this one. Yep. And a couple of us went over to go glass you guys. So we went to a new knob to try and see the deer drop behind kind of a, a, a ridge or whatever. We we're going to go over and try and see if we could spot him and lead you guys on. And yep. this is one thing to, uh, to mention as well. We hadn't done this before, so much on our our previous days but today we were actually using radios mm-hmm. and so we want to bring this up because obviously some people you know when you hear radios in in some places it isn't legal to use them right here in this particular case on this hunt it actually is legal to use them and it's at first you know like i guess to some people maybe at first glance or when you first hear that you may think oh there's a there's an ethical dilemma there but i mean you really have to see this country and you really have to see the deer and see how things work and how things need to come together in order for you to actually get a shot. I'm, we're talking archery here, remember? Right. To truly appreciate the fact that really it's it's leveling the playing field. You know, I mean, it's like the biggest advantage you have is your optics. And the fact that you can talk to somebody when they're out there stalking or whatever, using your optics and whatnot, yeah, it helps them. But in no way is it getting the job done for them. I, I'm just, spoiler alert, no deer were harmed today. No, no, no deer were harmed in the making of this podcast. Despite despite the fact that we were using radio. So it, they still have a heck of a, a, a you know, it, their senses are incredible. Just everything, the way thing works out, it gets nutty out there. But uh, anyway. Well, and we're out there with, you know, with some true pros too. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It wasn't just a bunch of, you know, like a hobnob crew. We have, I mean, those guys know what they're doing and even still we weren't able to get it done. But Anyway, just want to throw that out there, but that is the method that we were using today, or a tactic, or or a piece of equipment that we were using today. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, Jim, it, it is it is legal, and you know, of course, a person comes down here, they've got the choice to use them or not use them, you know, however they wish, right? Mm-hmm. But still, super challenging and super fun. And uh, I mean, I, the other thing that I actually liked is even though when Corey and I were working that other buck, we could hear you being kind of walked in to the buck that you were after 
and you're getting like this amazing play by play and and yeah. also what that I mean we're using some of that information to our advantage because we're like okay Jim's getting in tight but if he if that situation blows up what's that Bucks escape route going to be mm-hmm. you know so we were considering different positions where we wanted to be you know kind of playing off what was going on on your end because yeah that makes total sense I was actually wondering what was going on with you guys while this conversation was happening between me and Shannon because the whole time I was like, man, we're taking up a lot of the airwaves right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that was super cool. We we were actually in wild glassing for your guys' first stock. Right. All of a sudden, Shannon heard this sound, and I, I heard it and dismissed it immediately. I thought it was a bird at first. It was like this, like, <laughs> like that. And... And I was like, what the heck kind of bird is that? Like the most she, annoying sound ever from it, Dumb oh. and Dumber. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I just, <laughs> I'm just not quite sure that was the sound. And it, it, gen, I promise you, it was okay. really similar to that. Because cause I, I remember... I'm going to ask Shannon. I'm going to have him play this. Ask him. Yeah. No, I'm... I, <laughs> like, it sounded like that. Because first up, Ryan, would you... MC Ryan, would you agree that the sound was kind of like a... <laughs> like that? Okay, MC Ryan agrees. You're certain somebody wasn't being hurt down there. Yeah, because, okay, so I, I look over at Shannon, because he goes, I look over at him, and he goes, I think those are pigs, you know, like Havelina. Oh, okay, right. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, do you hear that? And then, of course, and then I hear again. Eh. <laughs> and and I'm like, that's pigs? And he goes, yeah, I think so. I think they make that sound like when they're, like, really getting riled up about something or whatever. And... He's like, go get your bow. So I'm like, oh, crap. So I go sprint back to the cars, go and get my bow, and I'm sprinting back to Shannon. When I get over there, he goes, no, it's two bucks fighting. You know, you bring up a good point, Jim. Always have your bow. Always have your bow. Always have your bow. I don't know why I didn't have my bow. Because I thought I was just going to be, oh, I'm just going to be glassing for these guys. Always have your bow. If you have a tag, have your bow. You could have been glassing and had a buck walk across the road from you. Well, funny enough, I got back to Shannon, and he goes, you see these bucks over here? So anyways, he's talking to me, and... I feel like I'm going to be whispering for like the rest of right. the next like three weeks because I've been whispering so much this week aside from this podcast. Anyway, but you know, he's like, he's like, you see these bucks over there? And so I'm trying to get on the glass and everything like that. And of course, I'm handling my 12. So I'm like, oh, I'm probably not going to see these things because I'm just, just so dang hard to find them. Anyway, I actually did end up seeing them. They were not more than 250 yards away, which oh is my gosh. very close. That's for close Coos. in this country. Very, very close. And I pull my binos down in out of, 75, 80 yards, this doe comes charging across the road, down a trail, down into this wash, and back up on the other side. And I'm like, look at that one right there. It was another buck. So we all of a sudden, we're starting to try and figure out how I can go in on these deer. And uh, there was a wash that went all the way down kind of along the road and then up into where the bucks were. So it was down real low. And normally, a lot of the stuff that we were doing was wanting to get up high on the coos deer so you could avoid any issues with wind or whatever, maybe get in above them, they'd be looking down below them, and then you'd sneak in up top. But in this particular case, it wouldn't have worked. They'd have seen me and busted me way before I'd ever gotten even gotten close. So I had mm-hmm. to go in low. MC Ryan goes with me at first, and he was following behind, and he had a camera and stuff like that. So we went down this wash, kind of tried to put a stock on. At this point in time, we didn't have a radio on us. And, you know, we're going in. I couldn't see them. Once once I got down that gully, I had no idea where they were. Everything looks different when you're actually down there, as usual. I got down. I tried looking back, seeing if I could see Shannon. I couldn't see him. And so we just started moving in. I was like, maybe we'll just catch an ear flick. Maybe we'll see a tail flick, whatever. 
And we had to move around some cactus. And next thing I know, we took one step and boom, there goes some of those deer. And oh, whoa, they appear out of nowhere. Only like 50 yards away. And MC Ryan and I look at each other and we're like, well, that was, you know, that was pretty cool. We got pretty close to those guys. We didn't even know where they were, you know. And I guess it is what it is, right? So we kind of hitched it up, packed it on back down the road to Shannon. He goes, you know, there's like still two bucks over there, right? And I was like, what? No, we just, we just busted them out of there. Like they're gone. He said, no, you busted out a little one in a doe, but for some reason the big buck that was over there didn't move at all. And he's like, and there's a little one that's coming in up top or whatever. Which had you had a radio. Oh, yeah. I would have known right away. I wouldn't have had to, you know, walk all the way back. But anyways, at that point in time, Shannon goes, put this on. So then I got the radio. And and this time I went out solo. And I was telling Mark, this is one of the funny things, is that never done a solo stock before, ever. Right. For So this was the first time for me. And every time I've heard people talk about stocking, I think I mentioned one of the previous podcasts in the series, I've heard people talk about hunting and they'd be like oh yeah so we're glassing up we finally see this buck so anyways we made the stock and we're there right and so we're there and then you know we're trying to get in position and i'm always like whoa whoa the stock thing sounds cool what is stocking how do you right. do that i got the a and the c yeah you yeah, can we talk about b for a little bit and uh when i talk to people like how do you make a stock and it was all i'm not backing on anybody because it is really hard to explain how a stock works because they're all different. Every stock is different. So you can't you can't say, well, every stock is going to work out this way. Right. But they kind of be like, well, I don't know. You just like get close to it and you do it sneaky. And I was like, well, what the heck is that supposed to mean? So to give it my best shot at explaining, basically, you get close and you be sneaky. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, we saw this deer. Again, it was actually basically in the same spot. So I had to drop down in this wash again. And... The whole time I'm going along thinking to myself, I uh, luckily I had Shannon in my ear kind of telling me, and pretty much all he can tell you is like, yep, deer's still there. Deer's still there. Okay, are you getting closer? If you're getting to where the gully splits in two, take the left one. And then once you're there, it's like, okay, there's a big rock face. The deer is to the right of that. And, <laughs> and even once we actually got close and all this, it took me about 30 minutes to actually finally see the deer, after, even with Shannon talking me onto it. But... As is getting in there, you know, it's like you, you kind of get an idea before you start your stock of where the deer is. You get a good lay of the land. You look at it in front of you. You get a sense for where the wind is going. You don't want them to wind you. So you want to make sure that whatever side you end up on the deer, if you are going to take a side, you're staying downwind of the deer. You want to make sure you're taking a quiet route. So in this case, the gully and, and a route that isn't going to get you seen because they are looking for you. And if you see in your, if you look in your binos, if they're standing or especially if they're bedded, they're looking around. They're always scanning. They don't want to die, right? They are hunted critters. So they are always on the alert. Oh, these things are on red alert constantly. constantly. In fact, I think they probably die from stress. They're, I mean, these are, yeah. they're pretty high strung. I you you can tell. I think everything wants to eat a coos deer. I don't see why not. From everything I hear, they're delicious. Yes. So anyway, you know, you don't want to be seen, you don't want to be heard, and you don't want to be smelled. Like those three big senses. So as I mapped out my route, you know, I dropped down in this gully and I looked ahead of myself and I thought, okay, I can actually crawl underneath some of these ocotillo that are growing in this gully and whatnot. And I can go around here. And if I go around here, am I gonna get too high where you can see me? And then, you know, okay, well. Is there another way around that won't get me up too high? So you just keep kind of following these little things. And and the nice thing is I actually used a lot of the still hunting techniques that I've used in Wisconsin mm -hmm. of just moving incredibly slowly, very deliberately, making every step count, concentrating on every single step 
you make. And it takes forever. It, I stalked this deer that was about 250 yards away for two hours. Right. And it was just a matter of doing that and like really making sure when I step on that rock, is it going to make a big sound? Oh, okay. That does look like one of the rocks that I've stepped on before that makes that glass like scraping sound. So if I step over there, is that going to make a sound? No. Okay. I'm going to go there. Boom. Foot down. All right. Next step. Let's plan that out. That's how it works. And some sections you can go a little faster. At one point, some A-10 warthogs flew over and they were like buzzing the whole canyon. I was like, well, I can make up about five yards here real fast because he's not going to hear anything. Mm-hmm. Border Patrol flew over in a helicopter once. So that gave me another little bump. Yep. Of, you know, whatever. You can use those little things to the, your advantage. And uh, Thanks, Border Patrol. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. <laughs> so, uh, But yeah, just got closer and closer and, and uh, finally found myself in this one spot where was within 40 yards of the thing. And it was super thick. Tons of Ocotillo, bushes, cacti, everything was in there. And Shannon's trying to talk me onto this deer. Naturally, like I said, everything looks different when you're actually in the area where the deer is compared to when you're glassing it from afar. So he was trying to tell me where the deer was. I was looking in a completely different direction. And uh, I literally just sat there for a really long time because I was like, I don't want to make a move and bust this thing because I'm in real tight and just sat there. Luckily, he was bedded, though, so he was kind of just sitting there, too, and ended up finally figuring out where the deer was. He was directly behind a green bush for me, which is why I couldn't see him. And so either one of us were probably about 15, 20 yards from this bush. I was on one side. He was on the other. And this was the point that was just like painfully slow. But, like, I had my bow on me, I had an arrow knocked, and I was painfully slowly moving. Doing crazy yoga moves, you know, you got to do around, like, branches and stuff like that. And then occasionally Shannon would tell me, you know, like, oh, he just just perked up. And I was like, okay, freeze. Sit there for three minutes, not moving an inch, not moving a muscle. Okay. Okay, he looked back down. He's when good. You, you mentioned something earlier today, Jim, that I thought, I mean, it actually hit home for me. You said, I'm stalking this deer, and I thought to myself, well, what would a mountain lion do? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably pretty good. That's what I tried to put myself in the in the, like, the same frame of mind. I was thinking to myself, like, okay, I've seen videos on Nat Geo, you know, of, like, friggin' mountain lion coming in and eating some antelope or whatever. And I was like, every time you see a dang mountain lion, what do they do? They're, frick- they're low to the ground. They're on all fours. Well, they're always on all fours, you know, but they're on all fours, and they're, <laughs> they're staying really slinky. They're, not like those dancing mountain lions in the circus. Da- <laughs> I mean, these are the wild ones. You know, they stay super low to the ground. Every time they put their paw down, it's in a very strategic location. And that's just kind of what I did. Ended up at 25 yards about from this deer. I'd say 25, 30 yards Amazing. from the deer. It's cool. And ended up in a, in a complete stare down with the thing for about 10 minutes straight. I wasn't moving a muscle. He wasn't moving a muscle. I was standing. Anyway... You know, I'm doing the old, like, hunting story because it's super exciting to me, but everybody else is like, yeah, okay, I don't really get it because I wasn't there. But, um, <laughs> anyway, I, just because it was so crazy. I've never, I like, never experienced anything like that before. And I just, like, to get across how fun it was because I know a lot of people rifle hunt these things, and that sounds like a really fun thing that I want to do, too. I'm not even bagging on that at all because I can appreciate rifle hunting these things so much more now. But to be that close to one, was insane. I mean, I was looking, I could, I was so close to it that I could actually see its chest cavity moving up and down as it was breathing. Oh yeah. That was wild. 
And we stared down for, like I said, 10 minutes or so. At one point, I moved to try and draw back. He flinched big time. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I hey, stayed. we're cool. We're yeah, cool, bro. Hey, bro. Bro, we're good. We're good. Stayed there for like another three minutes. And then I was like, I just got to dip behind this one branch in the Ocotillo. Did that real slow. Drew back. And I let the arrow fly. And I missed clean left. And uh, I can attribute that to a number of things. I think... My 10-minute stare down, standing still, not moving a muscle. Everything was tense. Heart was pounding. Uh, attributed to some arm fatigue that I definitely had. I think that my left shoulder was definitely tensed up more than it should have been to take a good shot and be accurate and not miss to the left. And I also think that I was just a little bit in an awkward uh, stance, too. You know, And that all comes down to practice. I feel like... You and know, you practiced a lot before I practiced this, a lot. Huh? I practiced a lot, but here's the thing that I didn't practice... I didn't practice shooting from a little bit of a precarious position. Right. I didn't practice shooting from between obstacles. I didn't practice shooting, you know, like whatever it might have been. Just that oddball stuff. You can practice in a range all you want. But now I know before I go on a hunt, I want to practice shooting from, you know, like, oh, I'm not perfectly perpendicular to the target. Maybe my foot is a little bit weird or cockeyed or, you know, I am going to set up something. So I have to almost thread the needle when I shoot it. Yeah, those kinds of things would be good to practice and really help you out more in the situation like that. But felt pretty cool, though. In a lot of ways, even though I missed, it was still a success because I felt, okay, the miss was entirely on me. The only reason that there's not a coos deer buck in a Yeti right now all cut up is because I screwed something up. It's not because the coos deer outsmarted me or it figured me out before I ever got to it. You know, like the stock was successful and then I just ended up flubbing up on a shot. Right. And so I felt pretty good about that. You know, it was sort of like, had I just not screwed that up. Oh dude, it's another yeah. huge win. Yeah. I mean, it's such, it's, it's, you know, and it builds confidence and you obviously gained like a ton of experience from it, you know, and then even just, you know, hearing the story, you know, like I can learn things from it just like hopefully some other folks can learn things from it as well but dude like that's a giant yeah did we get a buck or did you get a buck no but that's a huge success i gotta say mark too i said this over the radio you know what it only probably makes you want to get one even more yeah i said this over the radio too and uh, i know you really loved it i wasn't gonna bring it up say it now i wasn't gonna bring it up in in that moment i wished i had a compound bow for a couple of reasons one i feel like there would have been a little bit uh it would have been just I don't know. I feel like it would have been a little bit more likely to hit it. Not necessarily saying that like, oh, I'm super inaccurate with my trad bow. But with the trad bow, it's it's nerve-wracking. You have to get yourself in those situations that are nerve-wracking like that to get your brain trained to use its own intuition to aim. And, you know, because yeah. when you're when you're like, so much is going on, hearts pounding and whatnot, it's really nice to just be able to say, oh, I'll put the pin on it and let it fling. But when I'm, all that stuff is going on in my head, I'm like, is he going to move? 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 All these things are going on. My brain isn't do, doesn't have as much power to intuitively, you know, get myself set just right or get my, get my anchor point just right or get my shoulder relaxed just right. All those things are going on that I had to get just right. And so I felt, I felt like maybe, you know, had I had a compound bow, and I don't want to make compound bows out to be like, oh, it's automatic, you know, like it literally is just like laser guided arrows. But I felt like maybe I would have had a little bit less to concentrate on. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I haven't hunted with a trad bow before, so I don't know what those differences are. I know it definitely adds 
another layer of challenge. I think, you know, I think you can definitely, in general, increase your effective range with a compound mm-hmm. bow. But I think, and I'd love to talk with, you know, a person that's done a lot of both because I know a lot of those things, what you're describing there really sounds the same for me when I'm shooting my compound bow and it's that moment of truth and, you know, your footing isn't perfect and the deer is moving. Is he going to hit that gap? Is he going to stop? Oh, I had, I've been at full draw forever because he's been behind that tree mm. and he hasn't moved. And now he, you know, now he, now he did just move, but my arms are fatigued, you know? So I'm, I'd be curious to, cause, yeah, because I think there's there might be a few more similarities than you think. Well, and like I said, I didn't want to make it. I don't want to make it out to seem like the compound bow is automatic, but I do also feel like, for example, so like, like trad bow. I'm not Byron Ferguson, right? Who's been doing it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Very few people are. I probably could be better at shooting a compound bow by now in my life. Sure. Than yeah, I am better, at shooting faster. a trad bow. Yeah, I think that's I think so. that's what I'm getting at. Is I could probably I could probably be better at shooting at that. So that's that's where I was like, oh, you know, like if I was just like a better compound bow shooter, maybe I wouldn't have missed. So those were that was one of the things running through my head. But actually, another reason why I wish I had a I wish I had a compound bow in this particular case was that navigating this terrain with a longbow, not ideal. Sure. It's called a longbow. It's long. I saw you going around with your compound bow. And I remember asking you like man, are you getting hung up on everything? You're like, <laughs> no, not at all. And I was getting my friggin' string hung up. And, and I'm literally like, I was trying to like coddle the thing, like hold it like a football, not have anything touch it. But it's just like, there's almost no way you can it's go about that. It's just more to navigate. It is, the- it is. I mean, And so I'm trying to army crawl around all the cacti and everything and Ocotillo and stuff. And the whole time I'm having to pay major attention to where my bow is in space so it doesn't get caught anything and give me, give my position away. So yeah, by the time I got done with that, I was like, man, I would have gotten a compound bow through this, through this stock a lot easier. But nope, it's definitely. Uh, I mean, there's there's a reason they call it the struggle stick, Jim. So well, I'm gonna quickly, right. I'm gonna quickly, Jim, talk about mine and Corey's hunt today. Yeah, uh, because uh, it's more interesting because I was there. Oh right, right, right. Uh, but you know, cool. just, I'll just, just zone out real quick. Yeah. So just a couple quick things. I'll just, I'll just set the stage. We'd spotted two bucks. Uh, one was a, a nice fork with eye guards and the other was a real nice three point with eye guards, nice wide buck. And, uh, they, uh, were on, on the opposite hillside up high on the mountain. They actually worked their way down in kind of this, uh, not ravine, but just kind of like a crease between the two hills, if you will. They went yep. out of sight and we made a plan to loop around, keep the wind in our favor. So the bucks would have been to our right as we faced the mountain. And we kind of cruised uh, down through this uh, gully, this wash, uh, and up this ridgeline. And one thing that I wanted to bring up, and, and it was a really good point that, that Corey had made, is part of the reason we chose that route was if we bumped deer, we wanted to bump deer, hopefully, so they would go, away from the bucks that we were trying to go after. Yeah, if you bumped deer that you didn't see that you weren't going after. Exactly. So on your way to the bucks. And, you know, we'd seen a lot of deer on the hillside. We'd glassed up a a bunch of does. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, we had a couple, you know, several bucks out there as well. And we didn't want to, like I said, bump deer that we didn't know were there, have them go towards the deer that we were trying to get on and essentially take those deer with them. Because Buck sees a bunch of does tearing off like they're, you know, it's if World you're, War if Z. You're, if you're running, I'm running. Yeah. 
And so, anyway, so that, that, I think that was a really smart play. We worked our way up. And when I was talking to Ryan Lampers before the hunt, I'm like, dude, how do you get close to these things? Because I've said it before several times, probably even on the podcast, when I've hunted them with the rifle, I've thought to myself, how do you kill one of these things with the bow? And partially, I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> and he said, well, one thing, he's like, it's tough to actually stalk and get to the deer like what you accomplished him, Jim. So that's a pretty big deal. So he's like, you almost have to stalk and kind of get within that bubble and then hope that buck makes a move that puts him into a position where you can kill him, which in some ways is akin to how we hunt deer in the Midwest. Yeah, You know, absolutely. like stand hunting in a way. You put yourself in, in a uh, the best likely position where deer might come by within range. So we were working up, and we actually had some pretty good terrain features, and we had an awesome wind in our favor to get close to these deer. And we had gotten to a spot where we were getting ready to peek over, and Corey goes, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's a doe coming, there's a buck coming. And that's essentially what had happened. I mean, we had gotten into the field. Had we just stayed back and been glassing all day, we wouldn't have been in that position to capitalize on the scenario where, you know, after it was all said and done, the big wide three-point had actually changed positions, and they were coming down the ridge that we were on. Mm-hmm. I watched the doe come through a small opening, and this is probably about maybe a yard, two-yard wide opening. It was just a, a straight lane through a sea of Ocotillo. Yeah, you're lucky if you get an open lane here. The doe passed through. I could see the buck up on the hill. Once he got behind some brush, I took three steps forward, and I ranged a green bush, the green bush, you know, the one we're talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 the big green bush. Right, right, right. Seen it. At 30 yards. And I'm like, that doe passed right there. She was probably 30 or 35 yards because she was probably standing behind it. I'm like, this deer, if he follows where that doe went, like, if we can get him to stop, if we can get him to stop in this lane, you know, we're going to get a shot. I've got an arrow knocked. The doe passes by. The buck was not too far behind her. The doe got downwind of us and busted, ran Mm -hmm. back up the hill, took the buck with him, with her, I should say, and she actually went up the hill and stopped. He wasn't having anything of it, cruised across the valley, up the other side. Dude, when when you can draw a definite line. Oh, I mean, it's From you to, it's just crazy. Whatever vector that wind is on, it it is a wall of your scent, and if they get it, it's over. She was one step, none of your wind, Another step, boom, full you, like yep. in her nose, and she was gone. And apparently, well, I know, I, I don't smell good to me right now. I've no, been camping no, for we four days <laughs> in living in the hot sun and sweating all day. Um, I feel like we're complaining. I'm not complaining at all. This has been a fantastic week. It's been awesome. But anyway, so, I mean, like, just a cool, a couple cool, I guess, you know, tips that I learned along the way there from those guys. It's like, you know, get in their bubble. You don't necessarily have to get exactly to that deer within range. Sometimes the smarter play is to just, you know, stand off a little bit mm-hmm. and let them come to you. This country is noisy. It's loose. The brush is loud. I call it brush, but, you know, it's essentially just cactus everywhere that wants to grab at you. Um, but it tears at your pack. It tears at your clothes. And it makes noise. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's difficult to get close to these deer. So that, um, and so that's kind of how that scenario worked out. We worked our way. We spotted another little buck after that situation blew up. We're moving towards it. And this is actually simultaneously as you were putting the moves on the buck you were after. Right. You got a shot at that buck. I'm not actually certain 
if this buck was one, the big buck that was with kind of the group that you're in or not, mm-hmm. whatever happened, we heard rocks clattering. All of a sudden, a doe pops over, and in my head, immediately, I'm like, that deer's in range. I mean, we're talking top pin. These, she came by at like 15, 20 yards max. I see her, because at this point, I don't know if she's alone or not, but I'm going to draw my bow in case something's behind her. Oh, heck yeah. And th- I think that's a good tip, too. Like, I didn't know a buck was behind her, but I was sure as heck going to draw my bow you in case always, there was. You can always draw down. And Just because so, you drew back doesn't mean you got to send one. Exactly. So she comes burning by. No sooner than I get my bow back, probably one of the biggest coos deer I've ever seen in my life, comes burning by, Mach 12. I'm swinging my bow. We're grunting at him, trying to, you know, just give him the classic, Matt, 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 trying to get him to stop. He's not having anything of it. He passes by. Here comes a smaller buck on his tail. I'm still drawn back. That buck comes by just as fast. They don't stop. And getting back to deer taking deer with them, that big buck and the doe picked up the two point with eye guards that we were trying to stock. And he everything out of the was country. out. So then that was over. Sorry, Mark. And you know what, though? I was within bow range of two coos deer bucks today. I knocked two arrows. I did not fire a shot. And the day was a huge success and a ton of fun. That's just how it works. Complete blast. That's just how it works. I love this. I want to come back and do this again. And I was going to say, all it has done is stoked the fire even more for me to come back again. I was talking with Shannon, and he was saying that he's come out here three years, only shot one, only killed one once. Out of the three years, you know, he's missed two, I think he was saying. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to remind you, Shannon. I'm sure you know, but. Uh, <laughs> just these guys be- are good. They're these really, guys are good really, hunters. really good. Definitely better than I am. So to know that not everybody is coming away successful is comforting. And it's just, well, it makes you want to come back because you're like, man, this is a challenge, but it is a fun one. It's This isn't a high, this isn't a high success rate, high odds hunt. No. It's not. It's high on action and it's high on fun. I was talking to Corey, and, and don't quote he or I on the stats, but he was saying, I, th- I think he said he thought he heard it's like a 2 or 3% success rate. Not wow. high. Wow. But like I said, high on fun, though. High on fun. And if you like spotting deer from afar in a big challenge, I'd say give her a shot. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Man, it feels so good that I got to shoot one today. Even <laughs> I missed it. Clean miss, but feels friggin' cool. All right. Did we cover everything? We probably covered everything. I think we covered everything. It's also really late, and uh, and we need to shower for the first time in four or five days. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed this pod venture, though. You know, we did. I know we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, it's inspired some people to I don't know, go out, build your own off road, overlanding, camping, crazy hunt rig, get better at shooting bows. Come out and hunt coos deer and javelina, all that stuff, whatever it is. I don't know, Jim. I know we're making this go longer, but you're the car guy. I'm not the car guy. Yeah. I'm not saying that I'm going to build an overland vehicle. Well, you are. However, you know, we're talking about, you know, stoking the fire. The idea of having a super sweet off-road vehicle that I kind of don't care about, that I can sleep in and just like park and make camp is quite intriguing. We've got him, folks. <laughs> and on that note, on that note, good night. Good night. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. 
Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.